Welcome back to the most accurate podcast here at 444 Football. As always, I'm your host, John Daigle, joined today by a very special friend in life. He's a senior NFL writer for ESPN.com, the host of the Bill Barnwell Show podcast. And if it were up to me personally, Bill, you would be on NFL Live every day. Of course, that is the great Bill Barnwell. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, Daigle, what's up? Doing well, and this is something I've been trying to set up with you since the combine. That being my first combine, by the way, which is one hell of a scene. Yeah, and it's one hell of a scene for people who have never attended. It is um, basically a party that happens to be hosted by several hundred NFL people. Sorry, you can hear my dog decided to start lapping water immediately after we started recording so my dog also ready for prime time um you know it, it it's it's very strange and like the hours you as a journalist that you should really be awake are like 2 p.m to 5 in the morning which is a little strange not really typical for nfl coverage you'll bump into random coaches or random players or random executives and sometimes they'll be very nice and have time and sometimes they could care less about you or what they want to what's going on with them um it, it is a it is a scene it is a spectacle and and it's certainly cool to also see people who i like and admire and read and enjoy like you um you know, I, I get to meet a lot of people for the first time. I don't really go to a lot of NFL events. So it's kind of like, oh, hey, here's this person I interact with all the time. Here's this person I've had on my podcast. Here's this person who, you know, I read all the time who I've never met before. So it's, it's always cool to do that stuff as well. It actually gave me more respect for the people I already have respect for. Because as you mentioned, quietly, a 5 to 6 a.m. scene with everyone. <laughs> and then those same people, I won't say names, but those same people you wake up and they're on TV at 8 in the morning inside Lucas Oil Stadium. So it's just, uh, it opens your mind to so much when you're there. Not really a fan event either, um, I guess in that aspect of going to certain steakhouses. But still, what a what a great time just to catch up with everyone, including... As you mentioned, yourself, that's where I first bumped into you and promised you to come on a show that has more upside than ship chasing. So here you are, Bill, instead, and I'm excited to talk about football with you, beginning with a bunch of offenses and teams we we think could go in either direction. We'll sift through that. But I want to start with Stephon Diggs and the ongoing situation in Buffalo because his frustration with the Bills is due to, quote-unquote, his role in the offense and his voice in the play calling. I know you've discussed his contract details in depth on various platforms, but right now, what is your outlook on Stephon Diggs and this offense in 2023? Oof. Well, it's complicated because certainly it feels like they're going to have to have a plan B. Last year, what happened to them on, on offense really felt very similar to what we saw from the Chiefs the year before, which was we saw teams play too high, we saw teams take away the deep ball or try to take away the deep ball and sort of funnel maybe a lot of stuff underneath, which is something that's happening around the NFL. The big Bangio style of defense is becoming more and more popular, but the Chiefs felt it more than most in 2021. So they go out and they change the way they play. They trade Tyreek Hill away. They don't replace him with one guy. They sign Marquis Valdez, Scantling, Juju. They draft Sky Moore. I mean, they, they go for quantity over quality, but the big change they made on the field was they doubled their usage or I think close to double their usage of, of two or more tight ends since they got bigger. And then they subbed out Clyde Edwards-Alaire, who was 
Clyde Edwards-Alaire, let's be honest. I mean, it did not work out for Clyde Edwards-Alaire in Kansas City. They bring in Isaiah Pacheco, who is a power back, who's going to punish those light boxes when teams do play two deep safeties. When they play, uh, they, they drop eight and they rush three like the Bengals did in the AFC Championship game to help fuel their comeback a couple years ago. They got bigger and stronger and forced teams to match up schematically and then took advantage of those mismatches. So what did the Bills do this offseason? They go out, and after having a frustrating season where Josh Allen was forcing the ball into coverage, where he threw too many interceptions, where he was hurt, to be fair, but it felt like so much of that offense was Josh Allen making magic happen and Stephon Diggs making magic happen. They went out, and they signed Damian Harris, who is a power back, very different from the backs they've had in years past. They go out, and they draft Dalton Kincaid in the first round. Dalton Kincaid is not a great blocker by any means or even a competent blocker at this point of his career, but he is a player who's going to allow them to play 12 personnel more often. They're going to get bigger, and they're going to dictate matchups that way. So they're emulating a lot of what the Chiefs did to turn that offense not around because they were still good in 2021, but to improve and have an MVP season for Mahomes a year ago. Now, if you're Stephon Diggs, that doesn't necessarily seem all that enticing. It means you're running the ball more. It means that you're you're getting bigger on offense. I mean, the Chiefs last year, one of their big sets was, was three tight ends, and they'd have Justin Watson, who was their fifth wide receiver on the field for those sets. You know, there may be sets this year where the Bills come out with two or three tight ends and Stephon Diggs is not on the field. You know, certainly Stephon Diggs is not playing anywhere, so I don't think he's any worse of a receiver, but it does feel like that version of the Bills that was just going to be four or five wide, spread you out, let Josh Allen pick the receiver. That offense is not going to be as prevalent this year, and if you're Stephon Diggs, that might, might be troubling. Is there a way... In speaking about his contract details, that they would actually move on next year, let's say, because I, I would imagine it's too short of time frame, right, to turn around and build an offensive less or a digs less offense this year. Yeah, no, I mean it'd be ugly. As a Gabe Davis dynasty owner, I'm sure it'd be great for me. Not ideal for the Buffalo Bills if they want to win a Super Bowl. They just paid Stephon Diggs, I believe, a 16 million dollar roster bonus in March, so. That's just one of those things where, like, I think people may underestimate how hard it is to go to an owner. Even if Sean McDermott decided, I want to get rid of this guy, he can't go to ownership and be like, hey, you just paid this guy $16 million. Let's get rid of him before he's played a snap on that deal. It's just not going to happen. But next year, that's a lot more plausible. That is realistic to imagine the Bills doing. Now, they would have to make some additions at receiver, but it's much more feasible in terms of you know structuring the trade in terms of the contract stuff in terms of having that window that march to august window of finding either one or maybe two or three replacements for stefan Diggs in that offense so i think this is one of those things where you watch and monitor it i i don't think anything sudden is going to happen i know there was that like one day dip where stefan Diggs, you know there was concerns that Stephon Diggs might not be a member of the bills this year I mean, unless something Antonio Brown-esque happens, unless he's, you know, picking fights with Brandon Bean on the field or running off the field without his shirt on, like, Stefan Diggs isn't going anywhere this year. But next offseason, I feel like that is absolutely within the realm of possibility, depending on how things go here in 2023. You did mention two key players as well, in particular for fantasy. One is Dalton Kincaid, and that's a major reason why we think the offense will just look different this year, given that he had a 55% career slot rate in college, and now he essentially, we believe, drowns out Khalil Shakur in that area. The other key component is Damian Harris. And I'm curious, do you believe 
what they're saying audibly to the media right now. Sean McDermott comes out post-combine and says he doesn't like Josh Allen um, injuring himself with all the scrambling. Josh Allen comes out and says, yes, I understand. Like I led the league in quarterback hits last year. I probably need to scale it back because it is very similar to what's happened with the Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes breaks his kneecap in 2019, and since that time, a span of four seasons, three and a half really, he's totaled six carries inside the five-yard line because they said Andy Reid now says, and the Kelsey brothers have talked about it on their podcast, there's no way like we can allow Mahomes to get injured like running into the line of scrimmage in a condensed area of the field. Do you think that actually happens with Josh Allen this year? Whew, it's interesting. I, I am really intrigued to see what happens with a lot of quarterbacks running this year. And how teams sort of copy what the Eagles did. Because the Eagles, of course, popularized the push sneak. It's wildly successful. Extends drives on fourth down. And becomes a, a weapon for them in short yardage near the goal line. So Jalen Hurts, very effective there. Did get hurt, but didn't get hurt on a push sneak. Got hurt doing other things. I, I think more teams are going to adopt it this year. But I do believe there are going to be teams who are comfortable putting someone else under center to play that role. You know, the Chiefs, when they... We're running sneaks in years past post Mahomes. It was Blake Bell, I believe, taking the sneak. They, they've done stuff with backup tight ends where they've been the guy taking the sneak. And you're not asking him to throw the ball very often in those situations. You're asking them to either get pushed forward or if you want to have a counter for it, hand off on a jet sweep. There, you can train someone who's not a quarterback to do that, even if it alerts the defense, hey, one of these two things is coming. So from the Bills' perspective, I, I think there's two components here. Number one, are you going to run Josh Allen on sneaks? Are you going to run him on QB power? Are you going to run him in those situations where it's designed quarterback run near the five-yard line? I could see them calling those plays less frequently. I could. And I could see someone else possibly taking that role in that offense, someone else on the roster. I, I can't think of who it might be. Maybe it's Kincaid for all I know. But, you know, someone else being that player in that role. I think the question for me about Josh Allen scrambling and not taking hits, I find that one harder to believe because that is within the rhythm of the game. That's the flow of the game. That is the, you know, the 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 playmaker ability that Josh Allen brings. That is so hard to turn off for players. It, it happens. I mean, we, we do see players, you know, when they, they're being told, hey, you know, if you're running to the goal line in this situation where we can kneel and win, go down. Players do do that, but not everyone does that. It doesn't happen very often, and it's not going to happen as the season goes along. So I think Josh Allen, as a scrambler, is still going to run. But I could see the Bills calling more designed runs for a running back like Damian Harris because they're not going to call as many quarterback runs for Josh Allen in those situations here in 2023. I completely agree with you for the type of player he is, the one-of-one one talent between the 20s. But yes, I, I am skeptical and sort of do lean towards the coaching staff's opinions when it comes to that condensed area. Keeping in the division, I don't know if you heard, but the Jets traded for Aaron Rodgers. So let's start with the microanalysis of the player and your thoughts on Aaron Rodgers in this offense since last year, obviously, uh, Nathaniel Hackett fails to reach all 18 or all 17 games with the Broncos. And then Rogers now fresh off career lows and adjusted yards per attempt and fantasy mm -hmm. points per game. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 26th, I believe in the NFL in Incredible. QBR, which is, you know, if you ask me, do I think Aaron Rodgers was the 26th best quarterback in football last year? I would say, no, he's better than that. But do I think that it points to struggles? It does. His interception rate doubled. He, you know, didn't have great receivers. There's no question there. But 
I, I think the tough part for me when I look at this offense, and one of the reasons I'm, I'm sort of down on the Jets as a whole this year relative to, I think, where the market is, is I, I sort of feel like they're caught, sort of caught between two minds. If you look at the guys Aaron Rodgers has experience with, the guy who he guys who he's comfortable improvising with, the guys who he's worked with regularly for years, it's Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb. And those guys were huge negatives for the Bills, or for the Bills, for the Packers last year. When one of those two guys was on the field, Rodgers' QBR declined by 23 points versus what it was when there was neither Randall Cobb or Alan Lazard on the field. Not a huge sample, about 80 dropbacks, I believe, but still, I think, pretty telling that when he had speed, younger players in the lineup, Aaron Rodgers was much better when it came to moving the football. Now, Garrett Wilson is there. Garrett Wilson is awesome, was great last year with replacement level quarterback play if we want to be nice yeah, um, let's say you're being be very nice yes yeah i mean i don't want to disrespect mike white mike white was okay last year i mean Garrett wilson was very good drops are a concern but you know he, he's getting plenty of targets doing well with them i think he averaged close to two yards per route run last year i mean played very effectively but i just think about how long it seems to take rogers to develop comfort throwing in those improvised situations to his young receivers. Um, I think about how he deals with receivers who have drop issues early in their, in their seasons and how he does not typically find them very, uh, very favorable. And, and I look at what that, that offense is going to be. And I just wonder, you know, is Garrett Wilson going to be a player where maybe it take, it would take him two or three years to develop that sort of trust with Aaron Rodgers, where you can get the most out of each other, because that's not really what they have. This is a one year, maybe two year situation with the Jets and Aaron Rodgers. So, I think I have concerns about the tackles. I have concerns about um, the the passing game as a whole. I, I think it's going to be, of course, better than it was last year. But I just sort of come back to this, this idea of, you know, how often do you see a 39-year-old quarterback or a 38-year-old quarterback last year get significantly worse and expect him to drastically improve the following year? And Garrett Wilson helps, but, like, we're also dealing with an offensive coordinator who – Outside of his years in Green Bay, where he was working under Matt LaFleur, anytime he's been a play caller at the NFL level, it's ranged from being eh, kind of bad to being horrific, you know, get fired for the first time in 50 years uh, for, for, for on-field poor performance level bad. So I, I, I'm just very skeptical that this works out in the situation where the Jets are a, a, a top 10 offense even here in 2023. Let's continue taking in that direction because for betting purposes, books around Las Vegas have universally given this team and the Jets better odds than the Miami Dolphins, for example, to win the division. When, and you don't have to attest to this, but I'll say it, Miami quietly built a better roster from the top down mm -hmm. than Buffalo. Buffalo has the X factor in Josh Allen, I understand, but Miami's roster now with Jalen Ramsey, Bradley Chubb, David Long, Vic Fangio, mm -hmm. the list goes on, is mm -hmm. a top five unit in the NFL. And then as mm -hmm. you've also written about, you have other concerns with the Jets just by given the way they they registered most of their wins last year. They, they pretty much beat up on backup quarterbacks last year. I don't remember the exact numbers in front of me, but I think they were like five and two against second and third string quarterbacks and had like two and eight or, or something like that against, against starting quarterbacks. And one of the two wins they had was against Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers. So, you know, you know, it's not like, like, like when you bring that stuff up, people get angry. The Jets fans furious. Oh, you know, like you don't understand. We had Zach Wilson. He's a backup quarterback. And okay, that's true. It does matter. But 
it also seems telling that opposing teams did not have to play well when they had their starting quarterback. They did not have to play great on offense to beat you. Um, you know, the Jets defense played very well last year, and they were a very good defense. They were also the healthiest defense in football a year ago. And, of course, there's health concerns around this division. The Bills defense was so bagged up with injuries last year. No guarantees they're going to be healthy. Of course, the Dolphins. We're talking about Tua Tango-Vailoa and his health. You know, so much for the Dolphins hinges on whether they can keep him upright and keep him healthy. Aaron Rodgers is 39 years old, coming off of a thumb injury last year where he was banged up. Um, you know, I feel like I'm not I'm not down on the Jets. I think they're a bad football team because they're not. I just think the reasonable questions we're raising about the Bills, we're raising about the uh, we're raising about the 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 Dolphins, we're raising about the Patriots to some extent. I think those are also fair questions to ask about the Jets heading into 2023. And albeit a minor injury compared to their stars on defense. As you mentioned, you're already seeing the regression and being the healthiest team in the NFL with that most recent Chuck Clark knee injury from OTAs. Let's move over to the NFC and discuss the Dallas Cowboys in a Kellen Moore less offense. Mike McCarthy came out and said, quote, I don't desire to be the number one offense in the league. I want to be the number one team in the league. So how do you justify, Bill, Mike McCarthy basically being the one to push Kellen Moore out of town and now have play calling go his way. Mm, I, I, how do I want to say this nicely? Um, You're a nice person. I like that about you. I'm try, trying to be. I I can understand if you feel like your job is on the line that you want to have as much say as possible. And Jerry Jones was very patient with Jason Garrett. I think you have to give him credit for that, I suppose. Maybe you blame him for giving Jason Garrett too much rope, but certainly Jason Garrett was there for a while and kind of reached the point of no return, and eventually they moved on. But with Mike McCarthy, I mean, the pressure for failing the way he's failed the past couple of years where it's been, you know, the the team breaking down in the postseason, the offense breaking down late in the postseason – some change was going to have to happen from from ownership down there in Dallas and wasn't going to be Dak. Not, not that it should be Dak, but it wasn't going to be Dak. And Mike McCarthy didn't want it to be Mike McCarthy. So the next move to make is the OC moving on. And I think, you know, you can tell yourself a story about Kellen Moore and you can fill in some facts about it and say, okay, well, Kellen Moore, they did play fast. No question in Dallas the past couple of years. They did force the defense to play a lot of drives. I think they were number two in the NFL last season or somewhere in that range when it came to number of drives they faced over the past two years, I should say. But this is also an offense that was extremely good the past couple of years and an offense that was extremely good while not throwing the ball that often. If you go to Ben Baldwin's uh, neutral pass rate, I think they were exactly league average over the past couple of years in neutral scripts. So early in games when, when you're not sort of trailing by a bunch or ahead by a bunch where the game script is going to dictate what you're doing in neutral game scripts, they were league average when it came to the rate at which they threw the football. And then on top of that, look at what the Cowboys have done this offseason. Not only do they have Dak making a lot of money, they're just going to pay CeeDee Lamb a lot of money this offseason. They go out and trade for Brandon Cooks. They do let Dalton Schultz leave, but they're deep at wide receiver. They move on from Zeke. They don't replace Zeke where... We can say what we want about Zeke, but clearly Zeke was someone the Cowboys valued, someone they thought he could be, you know, who got a, a, a plenty of touches in that offense. I'm almost skeptical that Mike McCarthy is being honest with us. Like, I, I, I certainly think there's some part of this Mike McCarthy believes, but all the moves the Cowboys have made after 
after sort of saying what they said, have been to point towards we're going to throw the ball more. So I wonder if they change the way they throw the ball, maybe if they try to get, you know, more patient or conservative with the clock, if they run the ball more in certain situations. But I mean, the quote's dumb. Like, like the quote at the end of the day, the quote is crazy. Like we can just be honest about that. But I'm just more interested in the actions and and the the contracts and the moves teams are actually making than I am about what a coach says. And that leads me to believe that I'm maybe a little skeptical that the Cowboys are going to be more run heavy here in 2023. I agree with you, and my skepticism comes in the form of regression as well, just because, yes, um, they did get more top-heavy since we know the Cowboys and Jerry Jones are obsessed with having the best 22 men, but then when those 22 men, because injuries happen in the NFL, happen to fall out, that's when they struggle when it comes to death. At the same time, though, Last year's Cowboys offense was one of only 17 teams to score a touchdown on 70% of their red zone possessions over the last decade, since 2013. And all 15 offenses to reach that mark prior to last year failed to do so the following season and averaged a drop-off of around 15%, which would make the Cowboys like a below-average offense rather than being a top-five offense in the red zone. So given that simple regression, given that they're going through this play-calling scheme and that we're questioning how much slower, honestly, this offense will move, like you, mm-hmm. I do worry a little bit, quite honestly, Bill. Yeah, and I think it's reasonable. And I think, you know, this is a, a team that when you look at the numbers, their defense has not gotten worse as games have gone on. It's gotten better. They're be- the best they've played is late in games, typically, when you look at EPA per stop. So that has not been a concern. Look what they've done in the postseason it's not like they've been getting blown out by by opposing offenses in the postseason. The offense has been what struggled in the postseason. So I, I sort of wonder if this is a situation where, you know, maybe the big change we see is in January, where if they do make it to the postseason, Mike McCarthy says, okay, I'm going to figure this out. We're going to run the ball a ton in January because that's what you do when you win football games, ignoring the, the fact that the defending Super Bowl champions happen to be the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Eagles, who are one of the most run-heavy teams in football, actually are a, a pass-heavy team in neutral game scripts early in games, and they run very often late in contests when they have leads. So, like, we know this is going to come back to bite the Cowboys. It's just a matter of time. And, and I think, like... The chances that this works out significantly better for the Cowboys, where they're a much better offense or a better team this year because of changes that McCarthy makes, just doesn't seem very high. And so I, I think that's that's my concern. But I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, John, do you feel like this dramatically changes the way you view the receivers in this Cowboys offense? I think it's a positive that Michael Gallup is now two years removed from what was basically reconstructive surgery on his leg. It is still wild to me, too. That organization gave him $35 million without even questioning his injury. Very happy for the player. Nice. Good for him. But, yeah, but odd business strategy, understanding that he was not going to be effective in year one of that injury. So you've already lost a year of that contract. Um, So having him healthy, yes, we've seen Pollard have success. Pollard now has played three career games without Ezekiel Elliott. He's averaged 19 touches per game as a bell cow in those instances, as the RB1, RB3, and RB7 in those weeks. Um, But also – when we're looking at players who don't fit that bucket, who have not been trusted just yet to be every down backs, that also makes me question Pollard, who I love as an individual player. But if they have yet to actually give him a full helping 
why would they suddenly do it for a full season's worth of games now? So uh, like you, I just think I have a lot of questions and it's odd when you look on social media or like read through some um, news articles, because it doesn't seem like a lot of other people have those same concerns around this Cowboys offense. Yeah. And I think it's tough, right? Like I think it's hard to take a stance before the season and try and project something, especially when there's uncertainty about how it will go. Like if if you know the answer, it's easy to project how things are going to go. But I think, you know, for fantasy, for best ball, like I think, taking those stances on how things are going to go is is going to give you a significant competitive edge. And I think, you know, you have to sort of make a choice about Pollard, right? Like, I think that idea of, you know, being in the middle on him and saying, ah, he's going to be the same guy he was a year ago. Great. If he is, that's awesome. But chances are he's that guy are, are really unlikely if they if they don't run the ball as often in terms of just they, they slow down their pace. If they have a power back like a Ronald Jones or a Deuce Vaughn, or this one's not really a power back, but someone else who, um, you know, steps in whether they bring back Zeke or sign somebody else where they have a, a second back who takes some of the workload. Like at this point, either Pollard is a guy who they trust for more than 30 snaps a game, which they have said very explicitly. Running backs coach came out and said, uh, we don't trust, we don't want him to be a more than 30 snap per game guy. If you think he is that guy, well, then he's probably, you know, a, a top 15 or top 12 pick um, because he's the lead runner in a really explosive, exciting offense. And they're saying they're going to run the ball more. And if you think they signed someone, if you think that they are lying, if they believe Pallard is not a 30 uh, more more than 30 staff per guy game, well, he's probably, you know, being drafted a couple rounds too high because he's not going to get the workload. He's going to be so incredibly efficient with the workload he has, which is tough to do year after year. So, you know, I, I think it's an opportunity, but it's also a, a confusing situation. Speaking of confusing situations, I'm now giving you the onus to explain what happened in year one under Brian Dable in New York, and then what we expect from this Giants offense in year two, because it's still amazing that that's an offense that opened week one with a three-wide set of Kenny Galladay, Kadarius Toney, and Sterling Shepard, and then, of course, went three, five, and one down the stretch with, at the end of the day, an offense whose running back led the team in targets. Yep. I mean, that was a team where... Anything could happen from week to week. David Sills was a starting wide receiver in this league. I, I'll admit, I I know David Sills is like a high, hot college prospect. I had never heard of David Sills when I saw him on the field. I had to look up and say, who is this person? I, and I, I grew up as a Giants fan. I should know. Um, by the end of the year, David Sills, good blocker, was not playing very regularly for the Giants on offense. You know, it, it was a, a team where they were comfortable bringing guys in in midseason and integrating them into the offense. I think that speaks to how, how good of a coach Brian Dable is and how maybe limited some of the receivers they had on the field were. But as as I look at last year's offense, it was very much about let's make Daniel Jones's life as easy as possible. Let, let, let's not training wheels is the wrong word, but like, you know, let's limit the speed. Let's let's play at a reasonable pace. Let's 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 be smart about how we use him. Let's get the ball out quick. Because for Daniel Jones, the concern has been turning the ball over, forcing the ball into tight windows, fumbles, um, you know, second, third level decisions. And, and he can be a player who when you turn that off and say, okay, get the ball out quick, you know, move the ball on, run if you, you know, uh, look at one read, two read, run the ball. I mean, he can be effective doing that. And last year, given what he was getting paid, that ended up being a pretty good deal. My concern is when you pay a guy $42 million a year, which the Giants are paying Daniel Jones over the next couple of seasons, you're asking for more. You're not asking for like Sam Bradford 
with legs and and a little less accurate than Sam Bradford with legs. You're hoping for more from your quarterback. And so I'm a little skeptical Daniel Jones has that in him without, you know, turn, without fumbling more often, without throwing more interceptions than he did a year ago. He had, I think, a 1.1% interception rate. But I think if he's going to do that, he needs, <laughs> as you shake your head no, uh, if he's going to con- continue to improve, I think he has to have more help. And when you look at what the Giants have added this offseason, I'm, I'm not sure I see it. Like, Darren Waller was a great tight end two years ago. He's missed most of the past couple of years, a significant portion. I shouldn't say most, but a significant portion of the last two seasons with injuries was under 400 receiving yards last year with the Raiders. He's 31 years old. I mean, that is not a great recipe for a guy coming back and being a 1200 yard receiver, which is what the giants need him to be for this offense to work, especially as a, you know, a, a seam threatening uh, player as a player who you're going to try and, you know, make teams regret playing, uh, seating in the middle of the field uh, or creeping up towards the line of scrimmage to take away Saquon. Like he needs to be a guy who can stretch the field for you. I don't know if he's that guy regularly in 2023. And if it's not him, like like there's a lot of like B and C level pieces here, but there's no A. Um, Jalen Hyatt, who was their third round pick this year, who was supposed to be a speed threat, is now uh, playing with the third stringers uh, in OTAs. Uh, Darius Slayton, a guy who they didn't want to play last year for the first few weeks of the year is going to have to play that role. And I think Darius Slayton is a underrated player, but not necessarily, you know, e- even a, a Marquez Valdez scaling level player where he's going to be someone who can really stretch the field for you. Um, they bring in Paris Campbell, Paris Campbell missed most of his first three years with the Colts with injuries last year, average sub 10 yards per reception as like the second or third target for the Colts. Like the fact that they're talking up him in camp as like, this is a player you need to be excited about. I, I just don't see it. I mean, I, I see a lot of I say Hodgins. I see a lot of guys who last year were basically catch the ball, try to get as much as you can after the catch. But you're not going to be someone who threatens the defense. You're not going to be a guy who wins against man coverage. You're not going to be a guy who really challenges you the, the opposing defense. And that that's like a magic trick that I don't know if you can play time after time. I don't know if you can expand the offense with those receivers. I, I kind of feel like. We're going to be sitting here next year talking about how the Giants need to add that receiver, that DeAndre Hopkins type, that Stephon Diggs type, that that guy who can unlock Daniel Jones, because I don't think there's that guy in this group who's going to be able to unlock Daniel Jones in 2023, especially, John, if Saquon Barkley isn't there. That's an interesting point. And like you, I am certainly worried about Waller's injury history, 15 absences of the past two years. At the same time, though, am I wrong if that's the one player I want to believe in in this offense? Like, Bill, I I genuinely want to ignore his usage under Josh McDaniels last year because, as you know, all they did was say, actually, after you had 25% of our targets from 2019 to 2021, we're going to give you a lower target share and the highest depth of target, 14.5 yards downfield among all tight ends. So all they did was send them out deep from a quarterback who has struggled historically throwing deep in Derek Carr. So I do wonder if Dayball maybe just drags Waller a little bit closer from the seam, as you mentioned, to the line of scrimmage and gives him a higher floor for fantasy. That's possible. I mean, I think the Giants need him to be a guy who stretches the field, though. So that's my concern is I could see him being the same kind of player where Daniel Jones is, um, you know, it's not necessarily a great downfield thrower, doesn't always necessarily have the time 
to throw downfield. I think there's so much depending on Evan Neal, their right tackle, one of their first round picks from a year ago, developing into an above average right tackle because he was a mess last year. Um, I think he'll get better though, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I think obviously the upside with Waller is clear and, and there's no issue with, you know, I think valuing Waller as a player who, if things break right, which is what you're hoping for in, in, a, in a best ball strategy or best ball format to be a top five tight end. And I think he has that level of play in him still, but you know, I, 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 I think you're right in that he's the guy to bet on with this offense, but I just don't know that I want to bet on this offense very much unless you just think Dable is Sean McVay, which is not out of the room of possibility. That is your nice way to say you're skeptical of my thoughts on that. And I will also point out underdogs Hayden Winks has said Jalen Hyatt, who, as you mentioned, now with a third string offense at OTAs, only ran three routes from two wide sets last year. That is a 15 touchdown wide receiver, the Blitnikoff Award winner last year, who ran three total routes from those sets. So I absolutely question his return in year one trying to catch up to NFL schemes outside of Josh Hoople's offense. Let's also discuss the Vikings, uh, the 13-win Vikings, as their fans like to call them. But of course, Bill, 11 of their 13 wins were recorded by eight points or less. So do you expect any offensive evolution under Kevin O'Connell in year two? And how do you see this team faring in what is honestly a wide-open NFC North? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, certainly, they have more to work with at receiver this year. You have TJ Hawkinson come in for half a season last year. Um, he had a his role increased. They 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 played at a faster pace, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he, he, I don't think his target share went up dramatically. I'm just, I'm trying to remember. I looked at this like months ago, so I can be totally wrong. His yards per target literally dipped by three full yards because what they did was say Justin Jefferson, actually, you go deep now. Don't run yeah. these shallow routes. Jefferson's depth of target increased from eight to over eleven with Hawkinson, and they said, okay, Hawkinson, you run these seam routes now, and then that's why he soaked up sixty percent of the team's targets within nine yards of the line of scrimmage. So it was actually interesting how they used the two together. Yes, makes sense. So that, that's what I'm getting wrong here. Okay, so with with Hawkinson playing that role, now you have a third option in Jordan Addison, where we saw value in that role last year with KJ Osborne. Adam Thielen was kind of cooked last year. I mean, he was he was I think right around like 1.1 yards per route run. I think he was in like the 80s in terms of qualifying receivers last year. Uh, just a guy who was not making a significant difference. Of course, he's going to be a red zone threat because he gets open in the red zone somehow mysteriously. But that's a much more inviting opportunity for Jordan Addison as a rookie where you're not going to see a lot of safety shaded your way. You know, you're going to see, I think the idea of like double coverage is a little overrated. Like that guys are not typically getting the Belichick, you know, two double whatever treatment where it is literally two guys on you across the field. But it's usually... You know, you're going to see maybe safety shaded your way. You're going to see, you know, linebackers sort of tilting their zones in your direction. You're going to see, you know, a couple steps in, in, in your path where that, that window is going to be narrower for you than it would be for a typical wide receiver. That's not going to be the case with Jordan Addison. He's going to have more space to work with. And I think that's a really exciting opportunity for a team that, as much as analytically inclined teams like the Ravens or the Eagles or the Browns do have great running backs and love to run the ball, I think the ideal offense for the Vikings and Kevin O'Connell is going to be throwing the ball at one of the highest rates in football. And we've seen Kirk, you know, he's happy to throw them back into games. He's one of the best quarterbacks in football in garbage time in a negative way in terms of, you know, he's going to throw the ball and, and, and give you an opportunity to get back in games. I feel like as this team 
progresses towards the mean as they lose more in 2023, which I think not only everyone thinks, but literally I believe the Vikings think based on the moves they've made this offseason, I wouldn't be shocked if this team threw the ball at a higher rate and there were more pass attempts and, and targets to go around because they're going to have to throw to catch up in the fourth quarter of games way more often than they did back in 2022. Just another reason to somehow be even higher on Justin Jefferson, because last yeah. year also he only caught two of 14 end zone targets. So we're expecting that number to bounce back as well. So somehow Jefferson does have a higher ceiling. Uh, you spun off tentacles in two different directions that I want to discuss with you before you get out of here. One is Adam Thielen making 35 million and that Panthers offense. We know his yards per route run have now progressively dipped for five consecutive seasons. So how do you see him fitting in that brand new look Panthers offense from Bryce Young? I'm, I'm not not excited, I think is, is the way I want to frame it. I, yeah. I, I, I certainly think there's going to be more opportunities for him. I think he's going to get targeted more often just because he has to be the focal point of that offense early in the season. Jonathan Mingo is a rookie. Um, DJ Chark is just under an ankle surgery. He might not be 100% as the season begins. DJ Chark, and I think they've talked about maybe expanding his route tree, wanting him to be a more complete receiver. But I, I, I think at the end of the day, when you have a young quarterback, like you want things to be easy for him. So I think Thielen's going to be their receiver going over the middle of the field. I think he's going to be the guy, you know, they use on RPOs where he's going to be the, you know, the glance option or the slant option on those RPOs. I think Thielen's going to be the target for some easy completions for Bryce Young early in the season. And then I think on top of that, of course, he's going to have a red zone role because he's very good at creating space for himself in tight windows and being a player who gets open four touchdowns in the red zone. I think his red zone rate is, you know, it's higher than the vast, vast, vast majority of wide receivers. And I'm someone who is very aggressive about regressing, you know, touchdown rates back towards the mean for players. I think Adam Thielen might be one of the few exceptions to that rule. But I look at Frank Reich and I look at his offenses, I think tight ends are, you know, players he likes to get involved. I think he finds a way to get two, three tight ends in the field and does create opportunities for those tight ends. And so I think someone like Hayden Hurst is underrated heading into the season where I think he could be, you know, the number two receiver in this offense for a decent chunk of the year where I think there's going to be a lot of play action, a lot of moving Bryce Young, a lot of getting him out from under the pocket and giving him the opportunity to slice the field in half or, you know, like on a sale concept where you're just reading vertically and trying to, to high low different, you know, different defenders. And I think they're going to want to get him out of the pocket because he's small. Like, like at the end of the day, Bryce Young is going to have to succeed in the pocket at some point to be a successful NFL quarterback. And I'm a believer in Bryce Young. I think he's going to do that, but I think, Frank Reich is going to make his quarterback's life easier by not forcing him to be seven-step drop in the pocket, you know, having to find guys 20 yards downfield. I think they're going to try to do what they can to make his life easier. And I think Hayden Hurst can be a big part of that in terms of, you know, being a, a safety valve, being a guy who, you know, can be a soft pair of hands and a big target where, you know, it's going to be either a completion or an incompletion and less likely to be an interception. And I think that, you know, I'm – I, I guess I'm, I'm, I know Mingo in the long term is going to be the focal point. I think he's going to be the guy by the end of the season. But there's a whole chunk of that year where I think someone like Hurst, who's being drafted as like a 17th or 16th round pick and an underdog right now, could be, you know, a player who is a, a top 12 tight end for most of the season. Hurst did earn five and a half targets per game before he suffered that ankle injury in the second half of the season with the Bengals last year. And finally, you touched on uptick in pace and volume for the Vikings. 
But the offense that's getting all the pub right now, because we believe it's going to happen with, is the Baltimore Ravens under new OC Todd Munkin. They are saying at OTAs there's a lot of tight end and more importantly running back involvement, even though the last four years under Lamar Jackson, that offense hasn't has finished bottom six in running back target rate for all four seasons. And so what do you think and who do you think it benefits most this new look offense under Munkin? Oh gosh. Can I, I really have very little idea. I I'll be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what this offense looks like. I'm trying to figure out who is going to be the focal point, but more than anything, I think what it comes down to is who's healthy. Like, like I, I feel like we're sitting here now, looking at this offense, thinking, okay, J.K. Dobbins is a, a very valuable player when he's healthy. Odell Beckham, it's not the Odell Beckham of old. He was still good with the Rams, especially during the playoffs when he was healthy. Rashad Bateman was looking very impressive as a downfield threat last year for the Ravens before he got hurt. And of course, he's already dealing with injuries. Um, and I think he just got a quarter some shot, if I'm not mistaken, uh, before training camp even begins. Say Flowers is not is healthy, but is a first-round pick and those guys are not always immediate breakthroughs. And Mark Andrews, of course, is great. But again, is he a every down healthy player 17 weeks of the year? Probably not. So I, I think for this offense, like there's a big difference between how we think about them in week one versus who's left come week 18. And that, of course, extends to Lamar Jackson himself because Lamar Jackson has not made it through the last couple of years at 100% either. So starting off right now, you know, I, I believe they're going to be more like other NFL offenses. I think the Roman offense is more unique than the Munkin offense is going to be relative to other NFL offenses. I do think it makes sense that Dobbins would get more targets. I, I, I would be surprised if Mark Andrews and Isaiah likely got more targets or a higher target share because you're better at wide receiver. And the focal point of that Roman passing attack was the the deep over concept where it was just going to be expecting cover one because you had eight players in the box to stop the run and you're just clearing out that middle of the field safety with a a go route and then you're running a a post or a, a dig route underneath it hopefully to a wide open space that was really like the vast majority of what they ran that in four verts as lamar won mvp a few years ago but you know i i think that that's less likely to involve tight ends i think we're going to see fewer two tight end sets and i think we could see isaiah likely you know, being this sole tight end on the field more often, which would mean more rest for Mark Andrews as the season goes along. So I think, you know, if anything, I would say a sort of more of a a wider spread of targets around the offense as opposed to maybe having more of a concentrated attack the way they had a couple of years ago uh, when it came to their passing game. So that's where I start. But I think so much of it just comes down to who is actually on the field week to week in that offense still a good nugget since isaiah likely is going in the very last round on most best ball formats bill tell everyone where they can find your work uh espn.com espn television uh espn deportes i'm sure it pops on once in a while i don't know um espn plus i i like if you go to espn and you leave the tv on or the website on long enough eventually you'll uh, you'll come across something I do. So hopefully you guys are enjoying it. And of course, the Bill Barnwell Show podcast, debatable. Uh, ju just trying to get my name out there, John. And you're doing a great job, my friend. And anyone <laughs> becomes more knowledgeable if they go to ESPN.com and see you plastered everywhere. We will be back next week with John Paulson, who's still on vacation. But until then, you know, be a little bit kinder than what's required. We'll see you next time.